This morning we get to turn our attention back to Romans chapter 10, and we're looking particularly at verses 5 through verse 13 this morning. And we come to this marvelous question, the question of eternal life, and how do we gain eternal life? Is there a life after death? And who will enter into this eternal life? And what basis do we enter in? And this morning we'll look at the confusion of the Jews, and next week we'll look at the positive elements, the calling of faith. This is the most significant question to ask, is what is your eternal state? Not necessarily the most entertaining question in the mind of the natural man. The natural man is consumed with political politics and is consumed with economic uncertainty. The natural man is clearly consumed with social issues and cultural shifts. So many things that are flooding the mind of man that distracts him from this most crucial of questions. What is the state of your soul? Do you have an awareness of your eternal state? It's interesting to me that if the year 2020 taught us anything is that life can change in an instant, even on a global scale. And the whole world just came to a screeching halt, economies across the world, all because of, a, again, a pestilence, all because of an illness and uncertainty, and sending the world into a global response to this particular illness. And it forced you at that time to say what's really important, what is necessary in life. Everything that we were doing up until that moment, every job we were seeking and vacations planning and weddings planned and on and on, everything came to a halt. What was most important? This is a significant question. At times we have to lose something and lose things that we have that we find out what's truly important. It isn't a surprise that when somebody is sick, somebody is facing death, an illness, or some other hostile difficulty, that the question about eternality and where the state of one's soul is comes to the forefront. The Bible has regularly asked this important question. Think of the Old Testament example, Solomon, in Proverbs Chapter 4 and verse 23, Solomon says to his son, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. From the heart is the source or place in which one will gain eternal life. If one is righteous from the heart, we are our soul will live forever. And we will have to give an account. And Jesus framed up the question like this. If he was asked the the same kind of question in Mark chapter 8 and verse 36, Jesus framed the question like this. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You may gain everything, all the riches, all the resources, all the homes, all the power, all the influence. You can gain everything, but what value is there? to gain all of that and to lose 
your soul? The most significant, the most important question is the question of our eternal state. Do you have it or not? Do you have the promise of eternal life or are you under God's judgment? These questions are being pushed out and pushed away and clouded over today, but it is the most significant question. And again, I chuckle that how often this question, uh, ultimate concern, is always alive and active, and yet we're not always aware of it. I was laughing at myself this week as I was home alone. My family was at Abide, so I was by myself, wrestling over this illness, trying to overcome it, and then my microwave dies, the TV dies, the water heater dies. I mean, you can't even make this stuff up. Like, <laughs> everything's falling apart around me. I'm wondering at this moment, am I Job at this second? As everything is dying around me. And then, of course, there are news of people within the church who've had illnesses and had, uh, hosp- had to go to the hospital and, and had, uh, uh, you know, emergency surgeries and things like that. And I recognize it's in these moments that we recognize what's important and what's not. Surprisingly, I lived. I lived this week. You know, I'm still alive. And what was most important, what I needed, I, I, each day the Lord cared for my needs and what was most necessary. And I recognize, again, as the Bible continues to remind us of the most important things, it draws our attention to this theme of eternity. How does one gain eternity? In fact, I, that just sent me on a study thinking through that, through the whole scriptures. Let me show you. Start with, turn over to Revelation chapter 21. I just want to show you this theme that nearly every New Testament book speaks to the coming of Christ, the coming of his kingdom, future judgment, future rewards. The themes of eternity is a message that runs through nearly every New Testament book. I'd have to stretch to find something in Philemon if you're wondering, well, which one's note? You know, Philemon was a bit hard to find something in. And Titus as well is, uh, uh, speaks of regeneration and salvation presently, but the future aspects, it would be a stretch. But as far as the other books, every book emphasizes, and Third John, other than those three, the other 24 are very active in regards to speaking of heaven. Notice Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. 
I mean, describing here the, the glories of the coming kingdom of God. Verse 5, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the springs of the waters of life without cost. And he goes on and describes in here the the glories of heaven. See, there is an anticipation in the book of Revelation of the coming glories of God's kingdom and the righteous king who is going to rule and God dwelling among us and sin being done away with and the righteous and enjoying eternity. Go back through chapter 20 of Revelation. You see coming judgment. Turn over to the book of Jude. You see this theme in the book of Jude. Speaking of the future, Jude chapter 1, verse 17 through 21. Here's what Jude records. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, are worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now notice, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. How are we described? We are described as waiting for the coming of the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to be poured out upon us. We're not consumed in worldly things. We're not caught up in the, in the unbelief of the unbeliever. No, we're living in faith. We're living in love. We are praying by the Spirit of God. We are walking in love and we are anticipating this coming mercy to be revealed. Turn over to the book of 2 John. 2 John, verse 7 through 9. says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh, This is the deceiver and the antichrist. And he says there in verse 8, Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, notice, but that you may receive a full reward. Live in anticipation of this coming reward. Don't depart from it. Don't move away, but abide. Notice verse 9. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in his teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. So that John is encouraging his audience here to be prepared to abide in Christ, to abide in the Son so that you would have the full reward Turn over to the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. The same theme of the coming of Christ comes out. Now, little children, abide in him 
so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So basically he's saying, live in light at the immediate return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Live in lights that Christ can return at any moment and that whatever you're practicing in that moment wouldn't cause you any shame. You'd be ready to turn to him and respond. This is living in light of eternity. Chapter 3, verse 2 of 1 John, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We are living in anticipation of the coming appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn over to Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and following. This same theme comes out. And Peter expands on this theme and says they're knowing this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Jump down to verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Peter is warning his audience there is coming judgment. And even while the natural man lives as if there's no judgment and mocking the Christian message, well, where is the judgment? Where is it at? You keep saying it's coming, but it's not here. As they mock, they fail to recognize, as Peter says, God spoke these things immediately out of nothing. He can bring this judgment immediately. And as verse 10 says, this judgment is going to come like a thief in the night. You won't expect it. You won't be prepared. And when it comes, it's going to be a thorough judgment. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. See, Peter brings this out. You thought I was joking. I said every New Testament book. I'm not. We'll show you. 1 Peter 4 and verse 7 and following or says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the, prayer, for the purpose of prayer. Look, he's saying here, judgment is coming. The end is coming. There is, ju there is judgment that is going to come upon the wicked, and you need to be sober-minded about this. Jump down to verse 12 through 19. Brings this out here and tells us how to live in our sufferings in light of the coming judgment of God. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, 
which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that you so that also, notice, at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. So endure through this suffering, through this difficulty, for the time will come when Christ will be revealed, and at that moment you're going to be filled with praise, with exaltation, with rejoicing. Peter puts it in perspective. Why is all this happening? Verse 16 and 17 tells us why it's happening. Judgment starts with the household of God. It starts with us. That's why we face the difficulty. And if it's judgment happening with us right now, if we are suffering at this moment, then how much more the suffering for the wicked when their judgment comes? That's verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. God will preserve us, protect us, will keep us, and we're waiting for that time of his return in which he will deliver us. And again, throughout the scriptures, this theme comes out. In James chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, it says there that we are to be patient, strengthening our own hearts, waiting for the coming of the Lord is at hand. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, and verses 25 through 29, the Hebrew writer describes the coming kingdom of God as being unshakable. And he says there that we are partakers of that unshakable kingdom. So we have a God who has a consuming fire who is going to come and bring judgment, but we're part of an unshakable, immovable kingdom whose foundation is firm and secure. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This, comes, this theme comes out in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul giving a description of his own life says this for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come I have fought the good fight I have finished the course I have kept the faith and notice verse 8 in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but notice, but also to all those who loved his appearing. Paul says, look, this is, I, this is why I labored. This is why I, why I strive, why I taught as I did, and I ministered the gospel to lay my life down and pour it out, and now I'm waiting for the reward crown of righteousness credited to me and it is the crown that all who love the appearing of Christ are anticipating and waiting for Paul says it in 1 Timothy 6 verses 13 through 16 that we are waiting for the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time verse 14 and 15 
Turn over to Second Thessalonians. I love this. Second Thessalonians chapter two. This comes out in Second Second Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through four. I love this because clearly Paul was reading Daniel, and clearly Paul understood the Olivet discourse, Matthew chapters twenty four and twenty five. Clearly understood the prophecies of end time events and understood them to be taken literally. Notice what he says. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Until there is the apostasy, the rebellion of the man of lawlessness, until that political figure comes and opens up hostility towards God, the day of the Lord has not yet come. Remarkable, precise details about events to come. The Bible is laid out in multiple places telling us of the things to come. Literally, again, Paul here is taking the testimony of the prophets and of our Lord and reaffirming these details. There is coming hostility towards God, and there is one who's going to come who's going to lead this charge. But in light of this, again, before even the day of the Lord comes, other events had to happen first. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul here in 1 Thessalonians 4, from verse 13 through verse 18, describes to believers what happens to the dead in Christ. What happens if one of us dies before Christ returns? What happens if one of our family members who believe upon Christ die before he returns? What if we're, we're the only ones left alive when Christ returns? What about all those who came before us? Well, 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18 describes it. Verse 14, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For they will say to you by the <clears throat> for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Those who are dead are going to be raised up first, and they're going to come with Christ, and we will join them. Point is that there is coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will not escape the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ even by death. Death will not keep us from the Lord's coming. The book of Colossians speaks of eternal things. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. 
He said, Paul says, you're going to be revealed in Christ. When Christ is revealed, we're going to be right there with him in glory. Revealed. Philippians 3, 17 through 21, particularly verse 20, when Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to even subject all things to himself. He's saying, by the power of God, we are going to be transformed from this this weak body to our heavenly bodies. Riches, again, of God's Word is the testimony of coming eternal things, eternal life, the coming and the appearance of Christ, coming judgment. The most significant thing to come is going to be the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, the appearing of Christ. That will be the most transformative historical event that's going to end present human history and establish the eternal reign of Christ. All the kingdoms of men will come under subjection to Christ. The wicked will come under punishment. The righteous will be resurrected and able to reign with Christ for eternity. So obviously then, the most significant question is, what is the state of your eternal life? The state of your soul? As I said, you have Galatians, if you're taking notes and you want to follow up on these verses, Galatians 5, verses 5 and 6, speaks of the waiting for the hope of God to, um, uh, the hope of righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 through 10, for example, is a marvelous passage. It says in, in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Judgment is coming. No one can escape it. Each one must be ready to make a stand. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, describes those who will inherit the kingdom of God. And in Acts 28, verses 23 through 28, Paul uses the future events to come as a defense of his gospel. And then, of course, you have the testimony of our Lord in the gospels. Point is this. The Bible is very clear in warning anyone who reads it that Christ is coming. Judgment is coming. Reward is coming to the righteous, and judgment is coming to the unrighteous. So this is the most significant question. Even if for a period of time it was delayed, even if for whatever God's purpose is, he was slow in bringing about this judgment, this is the most significant question. Back to now, Romans chapter 10. We come to question then, all right, how do I gain eternal life? How would one gain eternal life? And Paul answers it, first of all, from the Old Testament here, and then he explains it through the gospel. Notice verse 5 of Romans chapter 10. He quotes Moses, and he says this, for Moses writes, 
that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Paul here quotes Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5. And in quoting Leviticus 18.5, he is demonstrating here that the, the source of righteousness. Leviticus 18.5, again, basically emphasizes that we gain eternal life by being righteous. If you live righteously, if you keep the law perfectly, as Leviticus 18.5 says, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. If you want to enter into eternal life, keep the law of God. Keep it perfectly. Fulfill it entirely. Observe all that God has commanded. Live by that righteousness and you shall enter into eternal life. Life. That was the solution that the Jews had wrapped their arms around and figured that we will do. We will go keep the law. We will go and we will keep all that God has commanded. And in keeping this commandment, we will gain eternal life. And what we see, and this will be our emphasis this morning, what we're going to see is the complete folly and inability of self-righteousness to attain eternal life. You can say it a different way, the complete inability of man to be righteous. Paul's been laying this out here. Verse 4, he describes the source of righteousness. In verse 4, it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You want to gain righteousness? You need to gain righteousness through Christ. And anyone who believes upon Christ can receive the righteousness of God and be righteous. The righteousness is found in the law. Now I want to clarify a little detail there. Because again, and I mentioned it, but it keeps coming up that one comes to even a passage like this, Romans 10.4, say Christ is the end of the law. And say this means that Christ removed the law. He abolished it. He ended it. He, he took it out of existence. And they use the word telos to mean that he has ended the law entirely. Well, I want you to see that Paul uses this word telos five times in the book of Romans. Let me show you. Turn over to chapter 6, verse 21 and 22. Notice how each time this word is translated, the five times, normal use. And again, we're just using Paul's normal use in his writing. Romans 6, 21 and 22. It says, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? says, for the outcome of those things is death. The word outcome is the word telos, the end, the outcome. We could translate it the results. The result of these things are death. All the things you used to hold on to, all the things you used to do, the result of those things is death, the telos. Verse 22, but now 
having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Again, the emphasis, that's the word outcome there, is the same word, telos. The result is eternal life. The word then, telos, isn't meaning abolishing, it's meaning the result. It's the, the, yeah, the results of it. The fulfillment of it. Turn over to Hebrew, or Romans chapter 13 and verse 7. We see two other uses of this exact same word. And again, I think the best way to translate this would be results. Here's where he says, Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Say, so where's the word telos? It's translated in this text as custom. Custom to whom custom. Or result to whom result. Or reward to whom, whom is, deserves reward. I think that's the emphasis here because the text is emphasizing we are to give to people what is due them. That is how we are to be operating. So in this, the the result, whoever has earned something, they are to get what they have earned, what what the results are. Back to Romans chapter 10, then verse 4. For Christ is the result of the law. Or Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Meaning, if you want to see what the law would produce in the perfect man, you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's exactly what the law would produce. If one was able to keep it perfectly. So then you think, okay, the source of righteousness then is Jesus Christ. Paul makes it clear in verse 4. He is the source. He is the one that we go to. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is, uh, and anyone who believes upon Christ would receive righteousness. The only way to enter in, verse 5 of Romans chapter 10, the only way to enter into eternal life is having righteousness. Paul now, in verse 6 and 7, and this is all we're going to look at for the rest of our moments this morning. He exposes the utter and complete folly of the self-righteous. You would think at this moment, okay, if Christ is the only way to gain righteousness, and if there's no credit that I can have in this, then I must just yield myself to him. That would be the natural answer. Say, I have no ability. I have no power. I cannot overcome. I need help. I need to turn to Christ and believe. That is where we should be led. But that's not the heart of the self-righteous. The self-righteous man thinks, no, I can go attain God. I can strive for Him. I, I can work myself right. I'm just a little off. I just need a little bit of help. I can go and find what I need to fix myself that I would make myself right before God. And you you and I would think, this is absurd. Who would possibly believe this? But notice to the degree in which the self-righteous heart goes. And this is where verse 6 and 7 comes in. 
You would read verse 6 and 7 and think, well, this is a strange verse. Both of these. Notice verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. And here, just want to see that he is personifying the gospel. And he's saying, here's how the gospel speaks to us. Verse 8, what does it say? So he gives us a positive message, here's what it is saying, and then he gives us a negative, what it's not saying. Verse 6 and 7 is what the gospel is not saying. Notice verse 6. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. You think, what in a strange passage. What is Paul trying to draw out here? Well, again, notice the context of this is the self-righteous person. Verse 3 of chapter 10, the person who is changing the standard of God, not knowing God, replacing, or as he says, they're seeking to establish their own righteousness. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So when you would come to somebody and you tell them, you're not righteous, the self-righteous person, and you finally expose their sin, and you point to them, well, you need Jesus Christ. Instead of them recognizing, I am helpless, their answer is, okay, then I'll go find him. I'll go to heaven. I'll go into the depths of the grave. The gospel is not, go find Jesus, grab him where he's at, bring him out before us, and then you can receive the righteousness of God. Think about the utter despair of that. Think about it. If that was the gospel, go find Jesus. It's a giant Easter egg hunt. Go find him. Maybe he's up there. Maybe he's down there. Go find him. If that's how you're going to get saved, is finding Jesus, go search him out. You know how utterly hopeless that would be? We haven't even gone to Mars yet. We've been planning it for ages. And that's not even the end of a galaxy, the solar system, the universe. We haven't reached the ends of it. Where's salvation then? We have just lost a submarine a few weeks ago trying to reach the Titanic, let alone the bottoms of this earth. Where is God if we can't even get to the creation before us? That's what he's saying here. This is the utter folly of self-righteousness. You can't go up into heaven as to ascend and grab Christ and bring him back down so that we may receive righteousness. And you can't even go to the depths of Sheol, to the abyss, and bring him up from the dead. Self-righteous man is utterly hopeless. But the Jew had failed in this. He had missed this entirely. He had changed the righteousness of God to something that he could obtain. Yes, if he fell short, all he had to do is offer a sacrifice and he could be restored. And righteousness only governed the outside. It didn't govern the heart. Yes, the law revealed righteousness. And he loved the law, but he didn't see the full extent of God's righteousness. So the self-righteous man kept trying to fix himself, kept trying to just change some external details to make himself right so that he could stand before God. And the gospel is a reminder of this. You cannot attain it 
by your own efforts. I mean, if ever there was a time in which uh, one's own efforts would have worked, it would be right here. All right, go find him. Go ahead and do it. Where are you going to go to be able to find him? Can you go into death? Can you reach the ends of God's creation? Can you exhaust all the places in the world and uh, all the places in the universe and find him and bring him back? The answer is absolutely not. No. Nowhere. There is the folly of one's own personal efforts. You can't trust in your own wisdom. You can't trust in your own strength. You can't trust in your endless, unconquerable optimism. You can't trust in your resources. You can't trust in your own abilities. How, was, how then would anyone be saved? Well, the joy is the gospel does speak to us. Verse 8, what does it say? Again, this is the mercy of God. It doesn't say trust in your own efforts. It doesn't say seek by your own power. It doesn't say you've got the strength to do this. It doesn't say you've got to put in the effort. No, what does it say? Verse 8, the word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The gospel, believe upon it. Confess and believe. You shall be saved. Instead of sending somebody on a fool's errand to get themselves right, the self-righteous pursuit, the gospel calls one to believe. We will unpack that more next week, what a heart of faith looks like and what it means to believe. But what is clear for us in this particular context is the awareness that the question of eternality and the state of our soul is the most significant question that the entirety of the New Testament draws our attention to, calls us to be aware of this, warns us of this coming. And then we see the absolute and complete inability of the natural man in his own strength to attain it. Absolute folly of self-righteousness. Let me just draw one implication for us out of this. And then next week we'll look at the glories of the gospel and unpack this confession and repentance. But the one implication for us is this. When we're struggling with our own sin, when we're struggling with, with walking in obedience which is the normal struggle of, of the Christian life as we are seeking to put off the old man and put on the new man. And when we are calling out behavior that is inconsistent with the gospel message, we want to be careful that our message isn't this. You better get your life right so that you can be saved. It isn't do these things so that God would save you. It's do these things because God has saved you. Romans chapter 6 tells us that. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? 
May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You've been saved. You've been set free to live for the glories of God. Set free to live in newness of life. Set free to be a slave of righteousness. That's what Paul says in verse 19. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. We are free. Free to live for God. Free to live for His righteousness. Free to live for His glory. We don't seek to obey to earn God's favor. We obey because we love God and have already received His favor in Christ. He is our Lord because He rescued us, opened our eyes. See, I bring that up because we have uh, the tendency, oftentimes, when either battling our own hearts or encouraging others, to come across as if you must get these things in order so that you can be saved. No, if that was possible, then there's a bunch of works we would have to be doing to make ourselves qualified to receive Christ. And it'd be the utter folly of believing that somehow we can go out and find Christ and bring him to us so that we could receive salvation. It's absolutely impossible. How are we able to stand before God in righteousness? By faith. By faith alone. And yet, you and I, we struggle when we disobey. And we should. There should be a lack of assurance if we're disobedient. There should be a discouragement in our own heart if we're walking in a way that is contrary to the riches of the gospel. We should experience that discouragement because... That lack of assurance is an evidence we've been opposing the Spirit of God. So you want to make your calling and election sure, as Peter says in First Peter or Second Peter chapter one, yield to the Spirit of God. Yield in faith. Next week when we come back, we'll look at the riches of the gospel and what it means to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, what I wanted to put on your mind is the encouragement of this truth that by the Spirit or even uh, by faith in Christ, you can receive God's righteousness and that hopefully you would have absolutely no confidence in yourself. So oftentimes I think it's um, people get to a point where they are um, feeling uncomfortable that they have no ability. And I say, well, that is the very starting point of salvation. Once you've come to the realization of your complete guiltiness and complete inability, you're now ready to call out in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, say, redeem me. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for these truths. Indeed, they make us uncomfortable because we have been self-reliant. And they make us uncomfortable because we have for so often trusted in our own abilities, trusted in our abilities to work and provide for our families, trusted in our abilities to get out of difficult situations. And yet it's with the problem of sin, the problem of evil, the problem of unrighteousness, we have an impossible debt. There's no way that we could pay off even one sin, let alone a lifetime of sins. 
We are so guilty, so corrupt, so indebted to your righteous law that we are unable to obtain eternal life on our own. But we're thankful for the grace and mercy found in Christ so that where we sinned, there was more mercy, more grace. So we pray that we would not turn to ourselves and look to our own wisdom and understanding, that we would turn to you, trust your promises, believe upon your word, humble ourselves under your mighty hand, call upon Christ as Lord and Savior and follow after him so that then the salvation that you have accomplished would not be by us, but by your good hand. So thank you for the testimony of your gospel and the testimony of your grace. And may this word minister to our hearts and souls as we strive to put on Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.